0: Two and a Half Admins, episode 17. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And we will be talking about Apple again. But first, let's talk about an article that you've written, Jim, for a change. (laughs) This one is the history of Intel versus AMD performance on the desktop. We're not talking the, you know, Xeon class. We're talking about the enthusiast high-end, your i7s, i9s, that sort of thing.
1: I can't even remember who who did. But in, in one of my CPU articles, we had a reader talk about how it'd be interesting to, you know, kind of look back at a history of where things went right or wrong for uh, for AMD. And I thought, you know, that that sounds like a great idea. I don't I don't think I've really seen anything like that. And I bet those passmark Mark leaderboards will go, you know, way back in terms of CPU designs, because in addition to the test itself, having been around for a long time, you know, since anybody can run it for free and submit their results, that means you end up with a lot of uh, you know really old crap, not just the brand new stuff as well.
0: Mm-hmm. What was interesting with this is the single-threaded versus multi-threaded performance and how there was a big change when we went to multi-core CPUs.
1: I found that really interesting too. I don't think I even really understood that at the time. I remember being super excited about the first dual-core CPUs and be like, oh yeah, I got to have that. And it's easy to get confused looking at those results. For the folks who haven't looked at those charts, what it kind of boils down to is, you know, before true quad-core processors, basically, a dual-core processor would be better at a dual-threaded workload than a single-core processor would, but both of them would run that workload slower than they would the exact same work getting done all in one thread. So even if you actually had two cores to work with, because multi-threading was so relatively inefficient on those CPUs, you'd have been better off doing all the work in a single thread and just letting the other core sit idle, which I didn't even realize at the time, but it's pretty apparent when you look at the mark results. The first CPU that changed that and was slightly more effective at getting a dual-thread workload done than a single thread, was actually into one of the Intel's first uh, Pentiums with hyper-threading. And it was dual-core quad-thread, and that was enough that you could get like 133% of the work done, you know, running quad-threaded that you could single-threaded. But uh, neither side managed to get to the point of being able to do more work on a multi-threaded workload until they had at least four threads to play with.
2: Yeah, and, and even then, you know, 133% isn't 400% that you would expect, right? And four cores.
1: Or even two hundred percent that you might expect with you know two true cores. It's easy then to kind of you know get your brain backwards on when you're looking at that. The thing you have to realize is because we're talking about you know such a small number of threads, and we're talking about you know such relatively wimpy CPUs per thread. You were running multi-threaded workloads back then, no matter what, because the operating systems were frequently leaving your CPU you know hundred percent saturated for minutes at a time doing things that now wouldn't really seem like a whole lot. So if you were able to handle a dual threaded workload more effectively with the dual core processor than with a single core processor, it still made a big difference, you know, because you were going to have to run that workload whether you had the extra core or not, because you just couldn't get everything done fast enough.
2: Well, yeah, I think that was the the thing that made the biggest difference when even just the first dual-threaded CPUs came out was suddenly, if your browser is using 100% of your CPU, the rest of your computer doesn't lag while that's happening. As much. (laughs) As much, exactly. Like, it's just the interactivity improved a lot uh, of the system. And there were other factors that also meant the performance was limited, like, you know, the caching and so on was not up to being accessed from multiple... Uh, CPUs at the same time and so on. And the operating systems, just the kernel schedulers were not in a place where they could understand we have four cores and let me schedule them in a way that makes sense.
1: I remember BSD was far better than Windows oh, yeah. at uh, at managing, you know, the, those early dual core CPUs, let alone when you started getting into, you know, the, the um, I mean, you never saw eight threads hardly, you know, until you got to Bulldozer. Not that Bulldozer was the greatest design but um, just the difference in the way a CPU like that felt under a BSD or a Linux in those early octacore days, you know, versus what it did in Windows. Uh, and we still see the kind of that same kind of thing now, you know, when when AMD really upped the game with the big thread rippers and you started seeing, you know, 64 thread CPUs. Uh, I remember there were issues benchmarking those properly under Windows because, you know, a- unless you played some fairly stupid tricks. Windows just didn't know what to do with all those threads and would only exercise 32 of them. Yeah, there was a lot of that. And just even in other operating
2: systems, the locking and stuff was to the point there, you know, we tested it in it scales perfectly fine with as many CPUs as anybody's ever had. But suddenly when you have 64 or 128 threads, (laughs) it's like, well, if you have a hundred people all trying to use this lock at once, it turns out after about 64, it gets really terrible performance because they're all end up blocking on waiting on this one thing. And they're all sitting there, you know, forming cues and waiting in line to be the next person to go through the turnstile. And it just wasn't a scalability issue. People had to deal with, you know, the reason BSD had the leg up in the very beginning is because it had better support for the old dual processor systems where you had two separate sockets with, you know, one core CPU in each, and that was a, a big deal in the server workloads. And suddenly, mostly that code worked fine for you have one actual socket with one core, and then this hyperthread concept, but when that you know, really became a big thing. FreeBSD spent a long time and a lot of work in the the 5.x days getting up to a point of being able to handle those, all the extra cores and threads that were going to be coming. And even then, I think if we had told people that 15 years from now, people are going to have CPUs with 160 cores, and you'd be like, what? Well, fast forward to
0: today, and you can see how much of a lead. AMD has. If you look at the chart, one of the last ones on this article that you wrote, it basically looks like AMD and Intel were kind of fighting it out a bit of back and forth over the years of the last sort of 20 years. But then in the last two years, let's say 18 months, AMD has just rocketed off the charts almost and Intel are just left in the dust.
1: They are. But to be fair, we should also talk about, um, you know, AMD almost didn't make it. And uh, despite living through that period, I hadn't realized quite how bad it was. you know, at the, the end of the pile driver era, um, I kind of jumped ship. I had been sticking with AMD even though they were lower performance because Intel pissed me off for you know several various reasons, mostly revolving around virtualization. And I just wanted to stick with AMD where I could. But towards the end of the pile driver era, the discrepancy was just too big, and I jumped ship and uh, you know went over to core and uh, Xeon CPUs. What I had not realized was right about the time I left, AMD stopped putting out new enthusiast CPUs. They they didn't improve. They didn't make any new models. Um, like I remember, I
2: think it was Phenom or something came out shortly after I bought my first Intel in ages, uh, and then I just even stopped paying attention to what AMD was doing. You know, I had had five or six AMD CPUs in a row, and then uh, when I started teaching. I bought myself uh, an E8400 or something, a dual core three gigahertz. And at the same time, my roommate bought the QC600, which was quad core instead of dual core, but it was only 2.4, I think, or 2.6 gigahertz, whereas mine was three. And so for gaming, mine always trounced his because especially back then, games didn't like they could make it take advantage of a second core for physics and stuff, but they just had no use for a fourth core. And so having the higher clock speed was better. And th- the two CPUs were at the same price at the time. You get two, three gigahertz or four, 2.4 gigahertz. And I bought the bigger gigahertz and it worked out better for me. But at that time, was like I stopped paying attention to what AMD was doing. And it turns out it wasn't just because I wasn't paying attention. It's because they weren't doing anything.
1: Well, Phenom was right before what I was talking about, the uh, mm-hmm. Bulldozer and pile driver. Those were the, uh, the octa-core CPUs. Mm-hmm. And that's when things really started going downhill. Um, when it got to the absolute darkest years was in 2013, that's when AMD released their final performance CPU for four straight years, the FX9590. Um, it was 230-watt TDP. You could barely air-cool the thing at all. And uh, it still wasn't up to par, you know, with, with Intel's CPU at the time. And they didn't release another one from to, it was 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016. Still their top performing CPU was that FX9590. And during those years, they released, uh, you know, low budget efficiency. Uh, you know, they called them APUs, you know, the CPUs with the integrated graphics, but nothing else on the performance side. Then in 2017, that's when the Zen architecture hit, but that was the first new performance CPU they had released from 2013 to 2017. And Zen was just a little bit faster than, uh, you know, Intel's current design on multi threaded was still a little slower on single threaded, but it put AMD back in the game. You know, I mean, they went from, they, they went from being behind where Intel was in 2013 to being a real competitor again in 2017. And they haven't let off the gas since the Zen plus refresh in 2018. It didn't do much for the, you know, the, the massive raw performance on the multi-threaded side, but it was a significant solid upgrade on single threaded, which of course is where they still lagged behind Intel. And, uh, you know, then AMD released Zen two in 2019 and Zen three in 2020. And it's just been ugly. Meanwhile, Intel has whiffed hard, you know while AMD was still just you know flooring it
2: <laughs> yeah it's it's it looks like we're going to end up in this the reverse situation where it's just Intel doesn't manage to make their graph go up much for 3 years in a row
1: it's it's kind of complicated and Intel looks a little bit worse right now when you look at you know my charts there than they do overall because we're only looking on the desktop mm-hmm. and really these desktop processors and the mobile processors they're they're very related they share a lot of architectural features and Intel is still, frankly, behind uh, on the laptop side. But when you look at Tiger Lake, you know, what just came out like a month or two ago for Intel on the laptop side, it's truly compelling. Um, I think AMD still definitely has the edge, but Intel's really neck and neck with them. And importantly, when we get back to that, you know, single threaded performance, um, Tiger Lake is faster than anything Intel has on the desktop side right now. So it's going to be interesting is seeing what happens in 2021 when Intel refreshes its desktop product line. It's not going to be as good as Tiger Lake, really, but it will incorporate some of those features. The The ugly thing is that Intel still doesn't have 10 nanometer yeah. uh, where they need it to be on the desktop side. So Rocket Lake, which is going to be their nest, next desktop refresh, it's going to backport a lot of those features from Tiger Lake but it's going to have to backport it onto the old 14 nanometer architecture again. So the odds of them suddenly rocketing past AMD, you know, let alone Apple. uh nope, not in 2021. Best of luck to them in 2022. I think that's where the problem is really going to come from is that,
2: yeah, AMD is skyrocketing and that's good for competition and so on. And and yay, AMD. Uh, but if Intel doesn't figure out the fab and the stuff, they're going to struggle to just keep on their current trend of going up, let alone try to catch up with AMD.
1: They'll get there. Honestly, it's good for everybody. I mean, I'm not going to make any friends with, you know, my my Intel reps saying this on air, but um, it's good for everybody that Intel is falling flat on its face hard for several cycles in a row because there's a big lead time when it comes to convincing OEMs what they're going to build with. And AMD being on top in one product cycle doesn't actually win them back much market share at all. Two product cycles in a row, especially when you get into the the stuff that's really, you know, tightly integrated at the OEM level, and we're talking laptops here. You need to be bad on top for like three or four years in a row to get them to really start taking you seriously and start thinking, hey, we need to make room for, you know, this company's designs. So... It's not a bad thing for the rest of the world for Intel to whiff a few times in a row right now.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, the the server market is especially very conservative as far as switching architectures and so on because yeah. It's not just the CPU and stuff. You need to have the integration with all the other stuff and the tooling and the the out of band management stuff and just a lot of stuff. Because of other things going on, there's just as many vendors wondering about, you know, should we be doing ARM rather than x86? So, you know, I think it is important that AMD get back on top for a little bit so that we get back to actually having the competition
1: that drove a lot of this. You know, that's how we got this core stuff in the beginning. That's worth talking about in the data center because the uh, the data center in a lot of ways, it's much simpler than the consumer side or much less the laptop side. Yes, you've got integration challenges in the data center, but they're far less than what you're dealing with, you know, on like a laptop And, you know, while Intel and AMD have kind of been trading blows, you know, in the mobile space with the laptop or, you know, in like the gaming enthusiast space, with the desktop, AMD kicked their ass hard immediately in 2017 when the first Zen architecture, you know, epics came out. They blew Intel out of the water in the data center with Xeons and they have not stopped since. You know, the Zen plus epics were better. The Zen two epics were better. The Zen. Yeah, it's there's just there hasn't been anything like, oh, we've got a good reason to consider the Xeon here. And yet, we're barely now, after a solid three going on four years of Intel getting their asses kicked in the data center, we're just now really starting to see fairly significant epic inroads getting made.
0: Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, Linode offers simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and more easily. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, manage Kubernetes, and more. Our website is hosted with Linode, and we couldn't be happier with them. So go to linode.com slash two and a half and click the Create Free Account button to get started. That's linode.com slash two and a half. Let's talk about Apple then, and I have to eat my words, unfortunately. Last time I said I had low expectations... In my defense, Apple were very vague in their presentation, and they set expectations low, I think, and that's why the reaction when people actually got these M1-powered devices in their hands, the Mac Mini, the MacBook Air, and the MacBook Pro, people were blown away by them. I've not seen anything but absolute positive reviews for them. I was wrong. It's as simple as that. This is the biggest shift in the industry probably since the iPhone, I think.
1: I think the problem, Joe, it's not really that they were setting expectations low. The problem is just that Apple's marketing and your consumption of marketing do not jibe well. Yeah. Um, whether Apple has done a home run or, you know, whether they've you know just, just barely touched the ball, they're just going to say a bunch of fluffy stuff because that's the kind of thing that their base wants to hear. They want to hear it's so pro and it's great and, you know, blah, blah, blah they're not really looking for the hard technical whatever. Actually, that might be a sign that you've got a whiff. If Apple starts talking like really hard tech stuff in a presentation, Mm. they might feel like they're going to have a loser on their hands and they're grasping at straws. (laughs) But, uh, you know, where, where you missed beyond that is just not in realizing how powerful the A12 and A14 bionics and iPhones and iPads already were. Yeah. Those processors were already Performance wise, they they were serious competition, even if they weren't winners necessarily neck and neck with an x86-64 top of the line, you know, laptop CPU, they weren't that far off. And that's the part you missed. And it was easy to miss because nobody's been building, you know, any ARM laptops apart from our friends over at Pine who are, you know, looking for that $200 price point.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's a few ARM laptops here and there, but none of them can compete. But I was also very skeptical about 16 gigabytes of RAM being the maximum, but it turns out that even the memory management on these machines is excellent, and you can do an awful lot with even 8 gigabytes of RAM on them. It's almost like with the iPhone. You compare an iPhone to an Android phone, and uh, I think my uh, Android phone's got like, I don't know, ridiculous 12 gigabytes of RAM or something, whereas the iPhones have only got like 4 or something, haven't they? And it seems that because they have that tight control over... The whole thing from top to bottom, from hardware to operating system and everything in between, that they can make these efficiencies and they can make them run faster than they really ought to.
1: I think 16 gigs of RAM has, has really been pretty reasonable regardless of your operating system for most things. I mean, if you're not doing truly massive multitasking, uh, 16 gigs is, is pretty solid, you're not going to hear me singing hosannas to Windows, you know, massive efficiency and how they do things. But uh, a 16 gig Windows box is sufficient. It's it's not what I sell, but it's sufficient for most engineers. Just somebody working a front desk in an office somewhere, yeah, they'll get eight and they'll be fine with it.
0: Yeah, but if you're doing any sort of content creation, which is traditionally what Macs have been about and still continue to be, then eight and even 16 is... It's not really enough if you're editing you know, 8K footage or whatever, but it seems that people have been able to do that on the 16 gigabyte models that
2: we've got here reasonably well. I don't know. The only thing that eats up huge amounts of memory in my system is the bloody web browsers.
1: Tab hoarding.
2: Well, it's mostly just like even when I close the tabs, you don't get much of the memory back until you actually completely end the session. Like I yeah. had to start having two separate browser sessions so I could have one that I end frequently.
0: yeah. <laughs> Exactly. But do you two both agree with me then that this is a huge change in the industry?
1: Oh, it's it's enormous. It's absolutely enormous. Um, nobody has ever taken the ARM architecture seriously on the desktop or in the laptop space. And the M1 is forcing them to do that. Now I expect we will very soon start to see serious competitors coming out, you know, because the operating systems already have the support, right? I mean, Linux on ARM and ARM64 has been a thing forever. Mm-hmm. Microsoft got serious about Windows on ARM and ARM64 a couple of years ago. For the Surface. But did, did they actually get that serious about it? Like, I remember, what was it? Windows RT, was it called? Yeah, but it's not Windows RT anymore. It's just Windows 10. Okay. You can run Windows 10 on ARM now. So... With operating systems already there, the only thing that's really left is for an OEM to say, you know, hey, you know, maybe we should take a stab at like not a super duper budget. Like you won't believe how cheap this piece of crap is, mm. but maybe we should like take a high end, I don't know, maybe a Qualcomm Snapdragon and build a system around that. See what people think. But is that going to be powerful enough, though? That's the
0: question, because yes, has anyone else got the fabs to make anything that can compete with an M1?
1: That's the thing, Joe. You don't have to beat the M1. The M1 is already hanging with really, really top-of-the-line x86-64 systems for laptops. You don't have to beat it. You don't even have to meet it. You just have to get in the same general space, and we've already been able to do that. Uh, You know, the the higher-end, like Qualcomm Snapdragons, for example— Um, you know, that you see in higher end Android phones, they're already decent competitors on performance. You can build a system around, but nobody would do that because of the perception. You know, that's not what an ARM CPU is. That's not what an ARM system is. That's what you do for this cheap, low power crap. Well, now that, now that Apple has changed that perception, it becomes possible to say, Hey, look, okay, so this doesn't have to be an M1 that's competing literally with like Ryzen 9. But, you know, this is a Qualcomm Snapdragon. It's competing strongly with like, you know, a core i5 laptop, only it's completely passively air cooled and, you know, blah, 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 blah. All the same advantages that we're seeing. Again, you don't have to beat Apple. The point is that Apple broke the ice and it's needed breaking for a while now. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And the the same thing's happening in the server space. We're seeing ARM 1U servers that are as good as x86 now, not little low end things, but things with lots of cores and lots of memory and that take actual hard drives not SD cards and and you can get serious stuff it's coming and so yeah i think uh you're going to see a lot more arm on both the uh the desktop and laptop side but also even the server side
1: again this the server side kind of led the way because it's easier it's easier in the data center to say, uh, okay, maybe my single thread isn't up to par with x86, but who cares? You know, I'm dealing in thousands of threads, you know, not one at a time. So when you tell me I've got an 80-core, 80-thread machine that is, you know, 80% as performant as an equivalent x86-64 machine, but is running on 60% the power, you've got my attention. Now I can pack more of these things into a rack with lower cost and, you know, do the same workload in less time because I've already committed to massively parallel workloads. I don't mind running more threads to get the same work done. That was more difficult in, you know, the the desktop and the laptop space because we're not as accustomed to having to break everything into, you know, efficient, massively parallel tasks. But we've gotten better at that on the software side. And now as Apple has really shoved it under people's noses, you know, Arm is a lot more performant than people give it credit for. It's not just the dinky little thing, you know, in a uh, in a smartphone on the high end or a Raspberry Pi or something on the low end. You can make a real system with it and you have these serious advantages with it. Like, again, you know, being able to just freaking run air cooled. I mean, even in a desktop machine, that's pretty cool, man. Like you got to be an old like me. But like I remember when machines were air cooled and we just expected them to be okay, whatever temperature it was, you know, and like not have a big heavy fan noise. Just turn the computer on and there it is and it's fine. Like we can have that again.
0: Yeah, until they get more and more powerful and then require active cooling again, and it all starts over.
2: Everything's a cycle. Yeah, I think the thing that really makes a difference here is also just the way we use computers has changed. People don't use many desktop applications compared to, if you think back to, like, the Windows XP days or even the window, earlier Windows days. Almost everything's done via a web browser, whether it's Electron You know, the apps that exist are Electron things and almost everything is done by your web browser. It makes it much easier to be using a different operating system or a different CPU architecture and still
1: have access to everything. Also, just our compilers have gotten so much better, man. I mean, yes. No, nobody's really having to write a whole lot of assembly code anymore. Uh, Very few developers are really having to think hard about architecture. I mean, you and I can talk about AVX 512 or SSE or all these other instruction sets, and some developers will need to think about that. But the vast majority of even professional developers are just like, I mean, I write my code and go and it works. You don't care about the operating system, you don't care about the architecture, the language and the compiler do the heavy lifting for you.
2: And people have already done the work for the compilers. Both GCC and LLVM have spent a lot of time over the last 10 years or more working on ARM64. And because of that, it's right there, very mature, good code generation, and we get good performance out of it.
1: Yeah. And when I tested the M1 on that Mac mini, um, you know, I, I very specifically was not testing it as an Apple device. I wanted to test it as a general purpose computer. You know, will this thing hang? And so I did it in the ways that, uh, you know, I, I would test any Linuxy system. Uh, I downloaded the source for PigZ, you know, a parallel GZIP compression tool, and I built it using LLVM, you know, just like I might on a, a regular BSD. And I ran it just like I would on any other computer. You know, I I didn't need to be a rocket scientist for that. I needed to be bright enough to find the code and, uh, you know, do dot slash configure make and uh, well make install didn't work. I had to you know manually cp it out to use your local bin. But you know, the point is this is not like you know oh god I had to do this horrible thing because of this whole new architecture. It just worked. The other thing we haven't talked about with this architecture is it's not really new, new. In some ways, it can unify us a lot. Most of us are very accustomed right now to having widely disparate code bases and ecosystems that don't really meet up very well. Almost everybody listening to this show is going to be like, I have this set of applications I use on my phone, whether it happens to be Android or iOS, and I have this set of applications I use on my computer, whether that computer happens to be Windows or Linux or whatever. And they don't really meet up very well in the middle. Well, as Apple has demonstrated with their M1 Max, you know, once you've got the same basic architecture and instruction set on both sides, it gets downright trivial to just be like, you know, hey, you want to run your smartphone apps on your computer? Knock yourself out click, click, install, done, performs just as well here as it does there and vice versa, which is pretty exciting.
0: Okay, this episode is sponsored by Datadog, the performance monitoring and analytics solution for real-time visibility into a Linux environment. Combining metrics, traces, and logs in one unified platform allows you to get a bird's-eye view of your entire infrastructure. You can also see any underutilized cloud or on-premises servers via the real-time, auto-generated host map. Datadog's machine learning-based alerts eliminate false positives and make sure that you only receive alerts on issues that matter. You can automatically detect unanticipated outliers, anomalies and errors with Watchdog, the auto-detection engine that surfaces performance problems in your applications without any manual setup or configuration. Start your Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash two five admins. Start your free trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t shirt. That's datadog.com slash two five admins. All right, let's do some free consulting then. If you want to send your questions in for Jim and Alan, you can do so via email show at two dot admins.com. And thank you, everyone who's supporting us on Patreon. That is really appreciated. If you want to support us and get an advert-free RSS feed, then go to 2.5admins.com. There's a link there to the Patreon. And if you support us for $5 or more, you can get that feed. And once we get to $500 a month, we'll go weekly with these episodes. So do support us. So Alex writes in, I store all my irreplaceable data on a ZFS mirror, as per Jim's article, which we can link to, but lately I had to resilver after a drive failed. I'd have felt more comfortable if I had a three-disc mirror during the resilver but is this massive overkill what is the likelihood of a failure during a resilver of a mirror
2: it's basically the same of is it failing but not during a resilver uh, maybe slightly higher because there's more activity but in general with spinning rust it's not using the drive that kills the drive but yeah it's always better to have and more than one level of redundancy if the data is irreplaceable, then, you know, you shouldn't be counting on just having that one S mirror of it. And as, as I'm sure Jim would agree, if there are not three copies of it, it doesn't actually exist. You just think it does.
1: And we need to qualify that a three wide mirror VDEV is not three copies of your data. Yeah, there's the 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 old truism here. We got to repeat it. Repeat along with me. RAID is not a backup. I don't care if we're talking about ZFS RAID or we're talking about conventional RAID. RAID is not a backup. Your ZFS mirror gives you uh, it gives you higher uptime. the The goal there is not to say, oh well, you know, I know that I won't lose my data because I've got a redundant mirror. The idea there is I will have to go to my backup less frequently because I have a mirror. So many. Catastrophes that otherwise would have required me to hit the backups won't require me to because I keep right on trucking because I add another drive in the array.
2: Exactly, you're you're avoiding the downtime of having to wait for the restore to finish by just having that higher redundancy level.
1: So the answer to your question, Alex, is is yes and no to it being massive overkill to have three disks. You know, in your mirror, it is absolutely massive overkill for you know the situation you're describing to have a three wide mirror. That's nuts. You don't need that much redundancy. What you do need is a real backup that you're not afraid to go to and use. So you do want to have three disks total, at least, but you don't want them all in that mirror. You want to go on with a two-disk mirror just as you already have it, and you want to be replicating frequently to a third drive that is not in that pool, let alone that VDEV. Um, Now, you can have that configured as an external. You can have that in another machine and replicate to it across the network but you want to be replicating since you're already using ZFS you want to use ZFS replication because it's absolutely the fastest most convenient less downtime less crap to dislike backup methods going to be available to you. Replicate regularly, uh, feel confident about it. And that way, you know, if you have a disk fail and you're resilvering, you're like, oh, man, I hope the other one doesn't fail while this goes on. You still know that even if the other one does fail, it's not going to be the end of the world because you backed up like the night before because you're doing it every night. Heck, maybe you're doing it every hour because you've got replication and it makes it easy.
2: Yeah, like for our customer video data, which... We're not supposed to be the only copy of that. You know, these are customers uploading their videos, <laughs> but the backup machine is happens to be in my basement, whereas the primaries in the data center and they replicate over a point to point link snapshots every 15 minutes. And we basically just keep the copy in my basement as close to, to real time copy of the data as possible. So that if the one in the data center does go down, we can do some magic with elastic IPs, and suddenly we're serving it out of my basement and people don't know that the storage server has gone down. Because like Jim said, RAID is not a backup. Uh, having mirrors and even snapshots in ZFS is not going to help you if you accidentally fat finger something and delete a data set. If you're trying to delete a, just a snapshot and you hit enter instead of tab or trying to tab something and you delete the data set, ZFS is like, yeah, that data is gone now. You just destroyed the snapshot too. What do you want me to do? That's what a backup is for.
1: You need to be able to survive a zpool destroy command is what it boils down to all the way up to I did zpool destroy tank. You need to know, ah, OK, well, I'm going to have to go back to last night's data then, which is on my backup, which I do and I am confident in. And it's right there. Yes.
2: Backups have to be automated or they won't happen. And you need to take the time, say every quarter or so, and actually test a restore and make sure it works. You can do it in a VM. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. But you want to actually make sure your backups result in giving back a working system. Because nothing worse than sleeping well at night, thinking, knowing you have a backup, and then finding out your backup doesn't actually contain what you thought it did.
1: Which I will actually say that's one of the things that is so wonderful about using ZFS replication for a backup strategy. Because you're replicating entire snapshots You you technically don't necessarily need to get as crazy with like the manual verification because you can just look at your list of snapshots. If you have the snapshot from last night on your backup machine, you have all of the data you had in production that night guaranteed. You can't have half a snapshot. You can't have, you know, a snapshot that's different. Um, It's going to be block for block identical. It's checksummed. As long as, you know, you've passed a scrub, you know, there can't even be any corruption. Like you're good. You're solid. Exactly.
2: And the nice thing with ZFS replication is the other copy is live. So it's easy to go in there and just copy out one file. Mm -hmm. It's not like you have to create a whole restore job and do all this stuff like you would have had to do with tape or some other old backup system.
0: Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send your questions in. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington.
1: I'm at JRSSnet.
0: And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you in two weeks.